Welcome back, forecasters. This is Michael Hendricks coming to you on May 1st, 2021, the first day of May. And today what I'm going to be talking about is to do with the Civil War and, and specifically what happened after the Civil War, the revision of the events of the Civil War, what led up to the Civil War, uh, and, and more specifically, how that history has been so revised that there are millions of people in the United States now that fully believe uh, some of these lies that have been told about the Civil War. One of the biggest ones, of course, is that the Civil War was about states' rights. Uh, I'm going to get that into that a little bit later, uh, but one of the, the bigger things about that argument that the South seceded from the Union over states' rights I mentioned this last week uh, in my podcast that 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 argument was completely untrue, and all you had to do is look at the Constitution of the Confederacy, and where it specifically lays out that in order to become a state within the Confederacy, that state has to allow slavery, and. I don't know about you, but to me, that is a complete repudiation of the idea of states' rights uh, and the Confederacy and why they actually split off from the Union. But I'm going to spend most of the time in this particular podcast talking about the early 1900s and 1920s because that is really when the effort really got going to completely revise the history of the Civil War and actually turn the Civil War and really the slave South into almost a romantic thing uh, that it has been repeated in movies time and time again when the South during this time was anything but romantic, especially for the millions of slaves that were forced to live there. And that's really... And really where this is coming from is... As you all know, if you've listened to me or, or read uh, my blog page, who followed me at all throughout this, you know that I live in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we are coming up on the 100th anniversary of one of the worst race massacres in the United States uh, since the Civil War. And that, that, of course, happened at Greenwood, which is right next to downtown Tulsa in, in what was called at the time, the Black Wall Street. And as, as I started looking into this and, you know, got some training as a teacher on how to teach this uh, to our students, it really occurred to me that, you know, we still have a lot of people in this country that simply don't know the true history of what happened after the Civil War. And of course, this does go back to Aaron Lewis last week, uh, trying to suggest in a song that he wrote that taking down the statues of Confederate generals or Confederate leaders was somehow an insult to the red, red, white, and blue, you know, the United States flag. And, you know, this is, this is a week later and, and that still bugs me that, that this person who you would think is somewhat educated somehow believes and, and is convinced that taking down statues of traitors to the United States is an insult to the United States. And, you know, the, the 
the biggest argument for me when when you talk about the statues of the Confederacy. And, and after this, uh, when I really get into this, I'll go into exactly when these statues were put up. You do, you don't look around the United States. You don't see any statues of leaders of the United Kingdom of Britain after we got our independence from them or after the war of 1812 you can't go to Germany and find any statues at all sometimes even mentions of the Nazis during World War II somehow in the United States uh, and some say this is because of the First Amendment I disagree but somehow in the United States we, we've come to actually honor traitors to this country we, we've come to honor those who tried to separate themselves from this country and that if we take down those statues we're, we are somehow dishonoring the United States when frankly as a historian looking at this through the history lens looking at how other countries have dealt with countries they have defeated even in civil wars they don't honor the traitors. It just doesn't happen. So sit back. Uh, I think this is going to be an enjoyable and learning experience on what actually happened after the Civil War. And after this uh, real brief break, we'll talk about my attempts to revise the revisionist history of the Civil War. Stay with me. Now, before I really get into this episode, I, I do want to invite everyone and anyone who wants to check out my Patron uh, page and uh, donate some money uh, we would greatly appreciated uh, my next efforts as far as making these recordings as professionally as possible is, is kind of just building a soundproof room even in my little apartment I have a spot set out uh, because honestly it seems like every time I go to record an episode um, the lawnmowers decide to uh, come and 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 do do the yards around my apartment complex it, it, it never seems to fail so you know getting the equipment that i would need to make a room in here soundproof so that i can do my podcast without having to pause or stop every time a mower goes past my window would be greatly appreciated uh, so again check out my patron page and, and maybe i'm mispronouncing it maybe it is patron i don't know but I encourage you to stop by my patron, patron, however you want to say it, uh, page. It's uh, patron, P-A-T-R-O-N dot podbean dot com forward slash Michael Hendricks 03. Of course, Michael is M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Hendricks being H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S 03. Again, that's patron dot podbean dot com forward slash Michael Hendricks 03. Uh, donate whatever you can. Back to the show. So naturally, before we actually get to uh, the revisionist history of the Civil War, excuse me, we do need to talk about the Civil War and uh, how we actually got to that point. Now, the Civil War ran roughly from 1861 to 1865. Uh, there were several endpoints to the Civil War. Uh, you got to remember, this is in the, the late 1800s. Uh, this is before any kind of telephones any kind of real communication. Uh, so even after Lee surrendered at Appomattox, uh, their fighting continued. The last known Confederate general to actually surrender was Cherokee leader Stan Waddy 
on June 2nd, 1865. But how did we get to that point uh, to begin with? Uh, that in itself is an interesting story. And of course it has to do with the election of uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Remember, he was elected in 1860 and not become president uh, until March 4th of 1861. And he, of course, was a member of the Republican Party, still at this time a fairly brand new political party in the United States. Uh, and one of the platforms I actually ran on um, was the abolition of slavery. Uh, now, Lincoln himself, uh, and you can look this up, uh, this is a factual statement I'm about to give you, Abraham Lincoln himself was not personally opposed to the institution of slavery, uh, but he did see where the, how the tides were changing in the United States and how slavery was becoming a more and more unaccepted institution in the United States. Uh, so he jumped into the Republican Party and jumped on their ideal that we needed to abolish slavery. So after Abraham Lincoln uh, took office, naturally several states believing that slavery was possibly at at or near its end, uh, decided to secede from the United States. This includes Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina. South Carolina, of course, leading that charge. Um, after the Civil War started, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia would actually join the Confederacy. West Virginia would actually secede from Virginia and become a state within the United States, so that's how we get uh, West Virginia. Now, to start off the Civil War, we of course start off with the very one of the very first revisionist posts uh, about the Civil War by the South, um, because they have always claimed that the United States started the Civil War, and that is just simply not true. Uh, at the beginning of this war, uh, secessionists in South Carolina actually attacked Fort Sumter, uh, which at that time was still a United States uh, naval post. Uh, it was not part of the Confederacy, uh, but the secessionists in South Carolina attacked it, and that is what kicked off the Civil War. Now, according to uh, you know Southerners, um, they claimed that Fort Sumter did belong to the Confederacy and that the secessionists in South Carolina were trying to get back what they feel, felt was occupied land. But that is not the case. Fort Sumter was a United States uh, excuse me, base. It did not belong to the Confederacy. Uh, and this is one of the very first, as I said, revisionist part of the history of the Civil War in that because of this, Many Southerners call the Civil War the War of Northern, Northern Aggression, and it's just not the case. Again, this goes back to what I said um, leading up to uh, this segment, is that th this was not a War of Northern Aggression. This was an act that by its very definition was traitorous. Uh, when they seceded from the Union, you know, that's one thing. You can call that a traitor's act if you want to, but the moment they fired upon a United States installation, that became traitors. And so the Civil War is fought out. Uh, of course, during that war, Abraham Lincoln, of course, gave his uh, speech and where he basically emancipated the slaves in the southern states. It, of course, is the Emancipation Proclamation. 
Uh, here's one of the slippery slopes uh, of, of this proclamation itself. While it did grant uh, freedom uh, to slaves in the southern states, uh, because they were in fact still within the Confederacy, it didn't really hold any teeth to it until the end of the Civil War or as southern states began coming back uh, into the United States. Uh, in order to become an actual free person, uh, an escaped slave would have to get to the Union to be fully recognized as free forever. Uh, because, of, of course, they were still in the Confederacy, which at that time was operating as a separate government. But eventually, you know, of course, the Civil War does end. Uh, the Confederacy is invited back to the United States. Now, the original plan that Abraham Lincoln had for bringing in uh, the southern states back into the United States uh, was basically a forgive and forget uh, kind of plan. Uh, and it, it probably would have been a decent plan. It probably would have worked. It probably would have set the South up a, excuse me, uh, a lot better. Uh, but upon his death, uh, the Northern Democrats, uh, who controlled Congress at the time, uh, decided, no, that's not what we're going to do. And that's where we get Reconstruction, where the Southern states basically had to work their way back into the Union. Uh, and that, of course, ca did cause a huge amount of animosity, um, and it set the South up almost for failure. Uh, so that's where we get to uh, Reconstruction. Uh, when Reconstruction ends, uh, this is when a lot of the revisionist uh, histories actually starts to take place. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's mostly aimed at the black people in the southern states, who were once slaves and now free. And before I move on to the next segment of this and we talk about where the revisionist part actually starts taking place, I do need to talk briefly about the 13th Amendment. Now, the 13th Amendment of the United States is what actually codifies that slavery is no longer an institution that can't exist within the United States. But there are provisions within that that, of course, was used throughout the South and even other parts of the United States uh, that would later become known as Jim Crow laws. Now, the reading of the actual amendment says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Now, the iffy part in there is except as a punishment for crime. And basically what happened after this amendment became the law of the land, uh, became a part of the Constitution and federal law, a lot of places in the South started creating new laws that specifically targeted former slaves, black people, so that they could easily go in and arrest these people and make them work for free. In other words slavery under the guise of breaking a law. Now again, in, in the South specifically, a host of brand new laws were created just because of this amendment, because they, they found the loophole within the 13th Amendment to be able to effectively continue treating black people as slaves. Alright, so that's a brief history of the Civil War up to the 13th Amendment. Uh, in the next segment, we're, segment, we're going to move on to the early 1900s and 1920s where everything starts to be revised about 
the Confederacy and the Civil War and the Slave South. Stay with me. Welcome back, and uh, with this segment, uh, I'm going to go a little bit more deeply into the revisionist part of the Civil War. And a lot of this has to do with the building or putting up of monuments and statues of the Confederacy, mostly Confederate generals and the, the president of the Confederacy. This started roughly about the 1890s, and the last monument known to be put up was about 1950, but the real peak was in the early 1900s, specifically in the 1920s. During this time, the group that actually led this was a group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. This, of course, was a group of almost entirely white women who raised money on their own in order to put up these statues. And this is really spurred on in an attempt to revise what happened during the Civil War, what led the Confederacy to secede from the Union, and also the attempt to romanticize the slave South. Now again, you know, you put up monuments to honor dead soldiers that, that fought for the Confederacy, you know, that's one thing. That, that's, that's a remembrance. That's, that's a way uh, for us to remember those that died in the war. But these steps went a lot further. Um, they specifically put up monuments to honor the Confederacy and to honor those generals and, and of course, the president of the Confederacy in a way that made them almost godlike, almost superhuman. And this just wasn't the case, because to, to a man, every single one of these people that have been honored over the last uh, hundred some odd years were all traitors to the United States. And, and to speak on that, uh, one specifically, uh, the main general of the Confederacy at that time, Robert E. Lee. Now, there is a famous quote out there from Robert E. Lee that, that, that conservatives love to trot out, revisionists love to trot out as a way to say, uh, basically a way to say that this was about state rights, this was never about slavery. And it's actually a misquote of Robert E. Lee. And, and, and you know, let me rephrase that, actually. It's not a misquote, it's an incomplete quote. And the quote they like to put out there is, uh, in a letter that he wrote, uh, it says, In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe, but will acknowledge that slavery is an institution, or sorry, slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. Now, if you leave it at just that quote, of course, obviously, this is going to point to him opposing slavery, and that he wasn't fighting to maintain slavery, he was fighting to maintain states' rights. Now, it is said that in his own will, uh, he had stated that five years after his death that all of his slaves to be freed. Not entirely sure why he picked five years. You know, why couldn't they just do it immediately? Of course, none of this would matter after the Civil War, all of his slaves were freed anyways. But there's a quote directly after that quote that is always left off by revisionist that actually points to how he actually felt uh, about black people and why they needed to remain in slavery and what he says 
is that slavery is a greater evil to the white man than to the black race in the United States, and that the painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction. So essentially what Robert Lee is saying in that quote is that the only way that black people, that slaves, are going to learn is to continue to be slaves. Percolate on that for a moment. Uh, the man that revisionists love to prop up as a man as the true indicator that this entire fight of the Civil War was about uh, states' rights and not slavery believes that the institution of slavery needed to continue because that was the only way that we were going to educate black people. And and that quote completely contradicts the quote they love to put out and that's the reason they always leave that part of the quote out because they realize that it's a contradictory statement that he may think it's an evil institution but in the United States at the very least it needs to continue because that is the only way that we can educate those people but again the, the early 1900s uh, into the 1920s specifically is is a time where we saw the south being completely romanticized uh, before the Civil War. Uh, and we, we see this in movies, uh, even even to an extent with Gone with the Wind, uh, many, a movie that many consider one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, in the South, before the Civil War, and even after the Civil War, it was not a romantic place. Because the people who enjoyed what was going on in the South the most were the plantation owners. They were rich, of course. They had free labor. They didn't have to pay anything to get the labor done and to sell mostly cotton. But if you were not a plantation owner in the South, you were poor. And to use the phrase, you were dirt poor. There was no romanticism for you uh, in the pre- Civil War South. And, and so they had to correct that in order to make the South look like it was, you know, the savior of the United States. You had to make it romantic. You had to make it seem like everyone in the South was enjoying the fruits of slave labor. And that just wasn't the case. So in the early 1900s and 1920s, uh, across the entire South, we start seeing these monuments and statues being put up to honor these traitors to the United States. And of course, there was the movie, The Birth of a Nation, that actually even romanticized it even further and actually made the Ku Klux Klan, which is the main focus of the movie. The, the Birth of a Nation is basically the birth of the, Klu, the Ku Klux Klan. And it romanticized the KKK completely. And it was a very popular film at the time. Uh, I have seen the film, you know, a, a lot. The filmmaking itself, if you take out the entire storyline in the movie, that the filmmaking itself was completely revolutionary for that time. And a lot of the elements that were used in that film are still used to this day. So the film itself was revolutionary. The storyline, however, 
is extremely problematic as it cast former slaves as absolute animals that needed to be controlled. And the only group that was doing the controlling was the KKK, who in the movie is perceived as the Great White Hope. The only group that was going to keep these beasts under control. And if we want to be completely honest about the formation of the KKK, it was almost a dead institution by the time the birth of a birth of the nation came out. Um, it, it it really was not a strong institution until that movie came out, and then that movie romanticized. I realize I use, I'm using that word a lot right now. But it romanticized the KKK, and all of a sudden, membership in the KKK skyrocketed. And then, to no one's surprise now who looks back at history, we start seeing all these race massacres across the South. Two of the worst uh, occurring in Oklahoma and Arkansas. Uh, and the one I'm going to be talking about in the next few weeks, uh, the Greenwood Massacre, or the Black Wall Street Massacre, was effectively hidden for, I'm going to say, almost 90 years, 80 to 90 years. It was effectively erased from the history of Tulsa. Uh, you know, my grandfather was born the year before it in Tulsa. My mom grew up in Pryor, which is about 45 minutes from Tulsa. And the first time she really heard about the race massacre and what actually happened was when I told her Roughly about five years ago when I first learned about it. And now we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary. And there are people out there who are incensed that we're even talking about it. And this goes all the way back to the 20s. When there was a great effort to romanticize the South. Romanticize uh, pre-Civil War slavery. And this is this is my thing about uh, all the statues that were put up during that time, from the 1890s to the 1950s. Yeah, if if there were memorials out there to honor the dead soldiers who were fighting for a cause that they believed in, whether the cause was right or wrong, uh, you know, I don't mind those memorials, but it's the statues that I have an issue with. They're they're not needed out in the public sphere. I worked uh, for a few months at a school in uh, Helena, Arkansas, which is on the Mississippi River. Uh, it is probably 99% black. But right there in the town square, right in the middle of town, are three statues for Confederate soldiers. Going into the town, there are statues for Confederate soldiers. And they're not needed. They need to be taken down. Now, if you want to put them in a museum, cool. That's where they need to be. It is history. It is history, but it's not something that we as Americans should be celebrating. It should be remembered, not honored. Again, these men were traitors to the United States. Keeping them up, as I said in my last episode, to me is the insult to the red, white, and blue. Uh, going back to the quote, the song quote from Aaron Lewis, who suggested that taking the statues down was an insult to the red, white, and blue. 
I, I disagree with him. I think keeping them up in the public sphere is the true insult to the United States. Put them in a museum. A simple solution. We don't have to honor these soldiers. We don't have to honor these generals. And if we really wanted to get to a true reconciliation of what's happened in this country since the Civil War, the first thing we need to do is get rid of those statues. The next thing we need to do is get rid of the battle flag, the Confederate battle flag, that people fly sometimes next to and sometimes above the United States flag. That flag, that Confederate battle flag, went into war, carried by soldiers who were seeking to kill American soldiers. We don't need it around. And, and, and yes, I, it is partially um, protected by the First Amendment. However, as we have a First Amendment right to burn the American flag, we also have a First Amendment right to burn the Confederate battle flag. And you may be wondering to yourself right now, why does he keep saying Confederate battle flag? Well, the flag that is most associated with the Confederacy, the one that you see everywhere in the south and in some places up north is not the actual flag of the confederacy it was a battle flag that was actually i believe carried by tennessee soldiers the actual flag of the confederacy did have the stars and bars but it was up in a corner and most of the flag was white but we don't need it around and, and it goes back and the one i use the most the most commonly the most frequently uh, is the Nazi flag. It's been outlawed in Germany. For good reason, I say. Am I saying that the Confederate battle flag should be outlawed? Yeah, maybe. Um, but it certainly doesn't need to be hung anywhere near the United States flag. And until we can get to that reconciliation where we realize that the Civil War was not a war about state rights, it was a war about keeping the institution of slavery going, we're not going to be able to move forward. Food for thought. Back after a moment. Welcome back. And of course that, that brings us to the now, to the current time, to the present, if you will. And uh, it brings to mind, and I heard the quote yesterday, and I, I've heard it quite a lot, uh, as we're moving to talk about, especially in Tulsa, the 100th anniversary uh, of the Black Wall Street Massacre, the Rays Massacre. And, and it's a quote uttered by white people, naturally. And, and that quote is, I'm tired of having to feel guilty for being white. And, you know, just think on that for a second, what that quote actually means. Because no one's actually trying to make white people feel guilty about being white. That, that's not what any of this is that, that we've seen in especially the past year. No one's demanding that, that white people apologize or feel bad for being white. People of color specifically are just asking to be acknowledged at this point. To be heard, to be listened to. And, you know, 
I, I've always had a problem with that phrase and another phrase I'll mention here in just a second. Because to, to me, really, when you say that, what I, what I hear you saying is that your history doesn't matter to me. Uh, because the, the, real, the real thing for me on this is that if you've listened to these stories, if you've listened to what's happened in our past and you've accepted it, yeah, we, we, in, in this country, we have a long history, at least 600 years, uh, of treating non-white people as animals. And, and when people say that phrase, what always hits me first is, it, the only reason you're saying that is because you do feel guilty. But that's not because of someone else's actions. When someone says... I'm, I'm sick of, of being told I should feel guilty about being white. You're the one feeling guilty. Now, I don't feel guilty for one moment about being white. Do I feel guilty about what white people have done in this country for 600 years? Absolutely. Absolutely. We all should. But it's, it's a way for certain people... And I hesitate to say the word because I've been told that, that I'm looking way too hard to find racism when in this country you don't actually have to look to find racism. It's all around us at all times. You don't even have to be looking to find it. It just pops up every single day. Every single day. So when I hear people say that, that phrase, to me that's, that's them saying, I, I, I feel guilty about this and I don't know how else to go about this so I'm going to be angry at the people that I think are making me feel guilty when in fact it's you that's making you feel guilty and if you feel guilty about it recognize that guilt and then try to do something about it to make it right yeah another quote I heard along with that my people weren't even in Tulsa when this happened so what so we just ignore it because our people, our ancestors didn't have anything to do with it. It's a very narrow view. And, and personally, you, you can say all day long that you're, you're an open person and that you accept all people. But if you're making statements like that, you clearly are not accepting of all people. And... It goes back, of course, to to uh, the saying that's been around for years. Not just not just on racial relations, but with just about everything. When people are tired of hearing about something, they love to say the phrase "just get over it already," and, and they'll say it in the most inopportune times. Uh, someone who's lost a loved one, whether to death or they broke up. Oh, you just need to get over it. That's the best way to get past it. Yeah, telling people who have a, a sense of loss, even if that sense of loss is 600 years old, just to get over it already, is not helping, no matter what you think. It doesn't help. It doesn't move the conversation forward. It just kind of uh, casts you in, in a bad light. And I, I, I don't really think that anyone that is fighting for the history of the abuse and killings of... of 
people of color, specifically black people, since the end of the Civil War, is that you should feel guilty about what has happened at all. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think right now, people just want to be heard. They want to be seen. And of course, that, that goes back to one of the my least favorite statements of, I don't see color. And I will admit, uh, my forecasters, that I was guilty of saying this when I was younger. Uh, until I just sat, I, I literally sat down and listened to some of my friends that, that were black. And realized fairly quickly that when someone says, I don't see color, what you're saying to them, what they're hearing is, they don't matter. You don't see them. And it, it, it's so true. I mean, when I realized that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. That when I every time I was saying I don't see color as a, as a way of saying that I'm not racist, was actually me essentially saying, yeah, I am racist because I don't see you. So I dropped that phrase from my vocabulary. It's something I haven't said in over 20 years, and you know, I just want to take this opportunity right now to apologize for ever saying it. Because I realized just how hurtful that statement is. And, you know, this goes back to uh, some of what I said last week about um, about cancer culture. You know, everyone has their views. Everyone has their beliefs. And, you know, maybe, maybe you don't have to fall in line with what society sees. But at least recognize what society sees now. Recognize that gender is a fluid term. Recognize that people of color are still hurting 600 years later. Recognize that certain religious groups that are not Christian feel like complete outcasts in the United States, which is supposed to be a country without a state religion. I'm not telling you, I'm, I'm not saying uh, that you need to completely change who you are. But at the very least, recognize it. And don't get insulted when, when someone calls you out on something you said or done. All I've ever recommended, all I've ever meant to recommend is that if you get called out for saying something, take some time to think about what you said or think about what you've done. And if you still don't see what the big issue is, then that's more of an indication of who you are than who the people who have called you out are. I mean, hopefully as we grow older, as we get older and get more knowledge and see the world around us, we can make some changes to ourselves to help make this place just a little bit more bearable. So I kind of went off the rails on that, uh, not to completely steal the title from um, one of my brother's shows that, that he's a co-host on. Um, I, I just kind of started rambling there, and I apologize for that, but I, I think everything that I've said is, is, is very important, whether you agree or not. And at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, forecasters, if we want to make this world a better place, we have to recognize what has happened and what is still happening 
to to those that are in the minority in this country, and that that is our our black brothers and sisters, our 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 Asian brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Islamic brothers and sisters. I I was born. Straight and white, and a man, or I was born a boy, but I'm I'm a straight white man. I, I may not be rich. I, I may not have had everything go my way in life, but I've known since my mid twenties, when I realized it, when I looked at the world and saw it, that I had a better advantage than most of the people in this country. Now. I, I chose to use that to become a teacher, which I, I'm most grateful for, that I'll never regret doing. But I had that advantage. A lot of people did not. Alright, and uh, to, to close out today's show, uh, I'm going to kind of combine uh, two of my segments that I, that I do every week, and that is my final thought. And of course, Ted Cruz is a dumbass. Um... But to start off, uh, President Biden held his first State of the Union uh, this week, and one of the lasting images of that was Ted Cruz, quote-unquote, falling asleep. Uh, now, I, I don't believe for a second that he was actually falling asleep, because everything he does, uh, to the most part, is coordinated. And so I'm, I'm sure at some point in the week, or in the weeks before the State of the Union, uh, he and his advisors and his teams came up with a plan for him to look like he was falling asleep. And I would not be surprised if he actually trained on how to look like he were falling asleep. Uh, at the very least, whether he was actually falling asleep or not, uh, it was uh, very disrespectful. I don't care who you are. Uh, when the president is speaking, even the former guy, you pay attention. Uh, I guess that goes back to, to me as, as being a teacher. Uh, can't stand it when my students try to fall asleep on me. Uh, but I, I don't. It, it, it's really amazing from the Republican Party just how disrespectful they can be towards a Democratic president. Of course, when Obama. Uh, was president. You had the guy from North Carolina, I believe, just shout out in the middle of his State of the Union, you lie. Now you have Ted Cruz acting like he's falling asleep. You have Lauren Boebert, Hubert, whatever her last name is, playing on her phone, and then she defended herself in a tweet saying that she was actually tweeting. It's still disrespectful. Um, now, it's been a long tradition in, in, during the State of the Unions for the opposing party not to stand at standing ovation moments, which is fine. It's political. It's a political play. Um, but Republicans have taken this to 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 the extreme, uh, where Biden was talking about uh, child poverty and lifting children out of poverty, and it's at the very least an applause moment, and they sat on their hands. Which is just a bad image for them. Um, but but the day after uh, Biden's uh, address, uh, the Senate voted 
to to basically they they passed a, a new or they voted to pass a law that Biden will will obviously sign into law um, to basically start a the process of revitalizing the water in this country by replacing pipes. Uh, it's a very bold plan, but it's a needed plan, especially in schools that are really old, uh, whose pipes are so old that when you drink water from the fountains, you can taste the, the, the metal in the water. Um, but out of 100 senators, only two voted against them. One of those was, of course, Ted Rafael Cruz. Uh, if you remember, it was just a few months ago that Texas uh, was completely devastated by a cold snap and ice and snowstorms while Ted Cruz decided to go off on a family vacation to Cancun. One of the issues that sprouted up was the water system started to fail because they froze over because they're so old. So he continues to screw his constituency by voting against a plan that would actually help them by replacing water pipes. And, you know, one of the things I love about politics is obviously the political plays, uh, the, the political theater. Um, but, again, like I just said, Republicans are taking this way to the extreme uh, and opposing things that they're simply opposing because the Democrats like it. Uh, a lot of the things they're opposing right now that that they call a socialist agenda, quote-unquote, even though it's not. That's, that's for another for another podcast. Uh, but a lot of things they, they, they are calling a socialist plot in this country, a lot of the things are widely uh, favored by the American people, and even Republicans. And yet the Republicans... In Congress, the political Republicans keep saying that no one supports any of these. I know my favorite is they, they keep coming back and saying that the American people elected Joe Biden to be bipartisan. No, they didn't. Or, no, we didn't. We didn't. He laid out plans for what he was going to do as president. And he has, to this point, in 100 days, been following that plan. The American people did not vote Joe Biden in to be bipartisan. He just didn't. That That is a lie that the Republicans keep wanting to push. And it's always been interesting to me. Uh, the Republican Party, when they're in the minority, they like to tell everyone why the, the majority party, in this case the Democrats, were voted in. And that's not ever the case. Republicans were voted out for a multitude of reasons. One of those reasons being they weren't doing anything in Congress. They weren't passing new laws to help American people out. They, they spent more time trying to pack the courts than they did passing actual laws. And, and now the Democrats come in in control of, uh, of Congress and the presidency and are actually doing something. They're passing laws to help the American people. And the Republicans are shouting from the rooftops that that's not what the American people wanted. I'm sorry, what now? I mean, these people are serious. Seriously stupid. And, and what's worse is that their base believes them. Now, you got to remember, the Republican base is 
a very small base. We, we've seen in the last two elections, 2018 and 2020, that if it's just the base coming out to vote, they can't win. Now, one thing I heard over and over again during Biden's uh, speech the other night was anger from old white men within the party that he wasn't doing enough for the white base of the Democratic Party. And I've said this before. I said this in November. Uh, I said it throughout uh, up until his inauguration that, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to all these old white dudes, but you are no longer the base of the Democratic Party. So trying to tell the Democratic Party or those at the top of the Democratic Party what you need to be doing for the base is no longer the base of this party. The base of the Democratic Party is people of color. It is not old white men. Old white men had their shot and they did everything they could to try to ruin this country. So if you don't mind, kindly step out of the way. You can always offer your opinion. But your way is the old way. And I, I do realize that I'm pretty close to being one of those old white men. Uh, but I know what the base of the Democratic Party is. And I'm going to listen to those people. Because what they want is for the future of the, not only the Democratic Party, but for the, the United States of America. And honestly, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty cool picture of what this country could be. So that's all I have for today. Uh, I hope you all have a good weekend as always. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet, uh, but at some point, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I, I plan on doing a live show and I'm going to invite my Rocklahoma crew. Um, that's just uh, my brother and some of our friends who gone to Rocklahoma the last couple of years. Uh, and of course, uh, Doug Murray, who is a co-host of Off the Rails with Will Hendricks, my brother, uh, to do a live podcast. And... I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, um, it's it's probably going to go all over the place because I'm just going to open it up to them and we're going to talk about whatever we feel like talking about. It's not going to be specifically about politics. Um, it, I, I hope that it, that it happens that we can get together and do this because uh, I think it's going to be fun and um, it'll be uh, definitely different from my regular shows. Uh, also... In the next few weeks, I do plan on doing a podcast about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, again, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of that. So, you know, keep going forward. We're almost out of this mess. We're almost to summer. We're almost to the end of the school. Enjoy your weekend, forecasters, and we'll see you next time.